O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Those are the first two verses of Psalm 88, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, August the 6th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. Um, that psalm is is one of the more honest psalms you'll ever see in your life. I mean, it, it's it's a complaint to the Lord about the enemies that are around them. It, it, it's everybody has shunned me. It's, it's utter desperation. You know, oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I sur- suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. I mean, it's, it's painful, but you may have been there. I mean, you may not have been in the depths of that, but if you've ever pastored a church, there's been a time when you felt that way. Um, it, it's... It's it can be so difficult, you know. It's there. Life can be difficult, and David's honesty in psalms like this always just amazes me. He just pours out his soul. He doesn't hide anything. He doesn't pretend to be somebody and to pretend to have everything together, and everything's hunky dory. That's no. David pours out his soul to the Lord. He hides nothing from him, and it's. It, 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 and you can see in this Old Testament lesson that we're going to be dealing with today, in Second Samuel 12, the first 14 verses, which is the follow-on to David's affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, along with other uh, soldiers, I might add, um, is, is going to see why David does actually experience exactly what this psalm's talking about. He, he experiences being cut off from everything. But it's God's judgment and God's punishment against David for the sin that he's committed. So that's the that's the backdrop for that psalm. And so here we go with David. Um, remember, he's, he's committed this adultery. Um, Bathsheba has gotten pregnant. He's killed Uriah or forced Joab to send Uriah into battle and then abandon him so that he ends up dead. And then after a proper period of mourning, David brings her into his house, and he thinks at some level he's gotten away with this. And so <clears throat> the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the the man. And he said, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan says to David, You're the man. Kudos to Nathan for having the courage to tell this story to David and to confront David with his sin. And then God spoke through Nathan about the judgment. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. 
Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what's evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And thus says the Lord, Behold, I'll raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. You did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. David's going to pay a price. He's going to pay a steep price for this sin. He's going to have to deal with um, an insurrection from within the house. It's going to be Absalom. I'm not, you know, that's not a spoiler. Hopefully you knew that. And then, and then he's gonna he's gonna disgrace David in every way. David's gonna be um, just absolutely devastated by the things that that God's gonna do to disgrace him. But ultimately, he says, "You're not gonna die, David, but the child is." I don't, it's just reading those words. You know, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. It's completely innocent. This child is. So another innocent will die because of David. But it'll be personal. He'll gain nothing from it um, in any shape, form, or fashion. And so it, sin is sin. You know, whether you're a man after God's own heart, whether you're the Lord's anointed, whatever. Saul couldn't be confronted with sin. He wouldn't accept a responsibility for it. When Samuel um, goes and meets him, and confronts him with his sin of failing to utterly destroy the Amalekites and all their possessions. Saul blames the people. He blames every. I mean, it's just it's the garden all over again. He's not taking any responsibility for it. And David knows that he deserves to die here. And so it's a mercy to him that his life is not taken. But that mercy is counterbalanced by this child's death. It's David. David knows what he's done and, and, and halfway accepts. I mean, he accepts responsibility completely. I've sinned against the Lord, period. He doesn't blame anybody else. There's nobody to blame here except for David. He, I guess he could have blamed Bathsheba um, it's, you know, and, and, and rationalized that because, well, we're good at that. But, but he doesn't. David takes responsibility. I've sinned against the Lord, period, end of sentence. That's the end of that. I deserve whatever he wants. I, I, I deserve to lose everything I've got. Um, and so they, even the punishment for this is not as severe as it could have been, as we would have meted out. The justice that David himself would have given would, would have been less than or been greater than what God does to him here. So it, it, it's, it's an awful, awful situation. And it's unusual in Near Eastern histories to see such stories as this told of the, the man who everybody adores and from whom the messiah will come the the bible tells the stories of these men and tells us about their clay feet that it, it's it's an honest book in the sense that it that it never makes heroes until jesus comes along but the bible always points out the flaws and the sin of all of the the great men of israel nobody gets away 
with with um, a heroic portrait that's that's anything other than uh, true and accurate. We know about their foibles and their flaws. In this passage from Mark's Gospel today, um, which is Mark nine um, verses fourteen to twenty nine, remember they were up on the mountain yesterday. Jesus, James, Peter, and John had been up on the mountain of transfiguration, and when they come back down. The disciples are there, and there's a great crowd around them. The scribes are arguing with them, and, and the crowd, when they see Jesus, they're greatly amazed and ran up to him. I don't know what they're amazed about, because um, they don't know any of the stuff that happened on the Mount of, Tra- Mount of Transfiguration. There's something else going on. And so they ran up to him and greeted him, and they asked him, he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And somebody from the crowd said, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. It certainly sounds like he's having a grand mal seizure um, here, but that they, they are not able to do anything about it. And he answers, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. He's speaking mostly to his disciples there. Because they were unable to cast out this demon. There's something lacking in them that only he can fulfill. And so that so he has to personally come and do this thing. When he's given them the authority to do it, they've just been unable. And he's and and he asks, How long has this been happening? And the because the spirit seized him when the spirit saw Jesus. The boy has this seizure. And Jesus says, how long has this been going on? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And the father of the child cries out and says, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And Jesus saw the crowd running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit. Uh, saying, you're mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter into him again. And then it cried out and convulsed him terribly, and it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. He was just lifeless. So most of them said, he's dead. And Jesus took him up and lifted him, and he arose. And when Jesus went in the house, the disciples said, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus said, that kind can only be driven out by, by prayer. I mean, this is a special kind of power. In this, in this demonic force that sees this boy. And, and Jesus says it can not be driven out by anything but prayer. And so it, it's, that what does that mean? Well, I, I think what it means ultimately is, is that, that they're attempting to do things in their own power. And, and they need to call upon his power. And so, so calling on him in this situation and, and leaving it to the Lord because you, you, they probably tried the same sort of formulaic way of, of casting out these demons. And, and it's interesting that Jesus here commands it to come out and never enter into him again. I mean, I, I've been around healing ministry and deliverance ministries and stuff like that. And, and it's, I get it. I get that there are demonic forces. There's no question that there are. Um, but I, but I notice that things tend to develop and drop into formulas, and this is the way you do things. And I don't like formulas like that because I don't see that with Jesus. I see him healing people all variety of ways, and it, it must be that he's listening to something from the Father and doing it that way because that's the way the Father tells him to do it. I'm not saying there's something wrong with formulas. I'm just saying I don't see those formulas 
anywhere in Scripture. And here it, it comes a case where they can't do anything. And so Jesus has to deal with it himself. And then he tells him this can only come out by prayer. And maybe it's they've gotten too comfortable. Maybe they, maybe they're like David, and they've gotten too comfortable in their own abilities, and they're they're no longer really relying on the Spirit, and so they're not uh, um, cooperating with the Spirit well in these ways. And 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 it's it's not sin, but it's familiarity, and and familiarity can become the biggest barrier and the hindrance to us seeing how God wants to do things and to to following Him, because we, we we're depending on the formula, we're depending on the familiar to us and then suddenly we're stymied and we don't know what to do and how to go forward and it's because we're, we're relying on on something other than him and, and I, that that david had gotten fat and happy and he had forgotten what it what it was that made him great and that was that he was the one who led them out to battle and instead he stayed home and and then he wanted more and more and more it's an agglomeration of of talent here, right? I mean, because he's just, he's got Abigail, he's got Michal, he's got this other woman, and now he takes Bathsheba too. He's, David's just, he, he's trying to act, to, to bring all these things into his own life, and, and it's it's going to be Solomon's downfall. It's that very thing. But David, um, David here has has made an enormous mistake and an enormous sin. And here the the disciples, Jesus doesn't fuss at them, but but he is telling them, hey, you, you guys, you're relying too much on your own devices. In this this the passage from Acts today, it's one of the most ridiculous stories you'll ever read in your life, right? So Paul is in Ephesus. He sends. Um, others on forward, Timothy and Erastus, he sends them to Macedonia, and he stays in Ephesus for a while. And there there becomes a problem, because as I told you, the, Ephesus is a place with a lot of shrines. And so the, the there's a problem in, in that the local economy kind of depended, at some level at least, on, on pilgrims to come to the, these shrines and then to purchase stuff. You know, I guess maybe they had the gift shop right at the end of the tour, just exactly the same way we do it today. And so there, there's a thriving business there in shrine-related stuff. And so this Demetrius, who's a silversmith, uh, who makes silver shrines of Artemis, um, and he comes and he gathers together with the workmen in similar trades, and he tells them, hey, our business is drying up because of these people who have come here. Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying the gods made with hands are not gods, and there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and she may even be deposed from her magnificence. <clears throat> she whom all Asia and the world worship. I mean, it's an interesting thing. Like Again, I've said this before. In all the places they go, the appeal ultimately has to become some, to some sort of civic thing, um, civic pride, because it, it continue, the complaints continue to be brought by people who have some vested interest. But, but that vested interest isn't enough to get the crowd to follow, so you've got to give the crowd something else. This great misdirection, well, we live in a time of great misdirection. <laughs> if you want to see anything uh, like mis this kind of misdirection, look at everything that's going on in the world today by both political parties in America. It's ridiculous the amount of misdirection that they do to, to keep eyes off of their failures. They point to all these other things and stir everything up so that you're missing the really important stuff. 
And so the, the people, and it works, right? I mean, the people start crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That, that, that's all that matters. It, it's, it's about our civic pride because we are the temple of Artemis. So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. Paul wanted to go in, but nobody would let him, right? The disciples say, no, 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 no. And then some of the other friends of his, don't go in there. Don't do it. So then now you've got, we've gone from greatest Artemis of the Ephesians to some cried out one thing, some cried out another, for the assembly was in confusion. They didn't actually know why they were there. I think we saw that. We've seen that for the last year in, in all kinds of different protests and venues. This is that, that there's not a cohesion there. People are confused. That They're absolutely confused about what's going on in, in every shape, form, or fashion, and that works. It works for leaders to have people in confusion. That way you get to frame and shape the narrative completely. But if you, if you continue to throw red herrings out there, then people will chase some of those red herrings. So most of them, it says, didn't even know why they'd come together. So some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who the Jews put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but they recognized that he was a Jew. So for two hours, they cried out all the more, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We're not going to let you make a defense. I mean, this is, this is the madness of crowds, and it's the madness of crowds that we've watched for the last year in America. <clears throat> the madness of crowds who, who, who have no earthly idea what's going on, and, and they're being misled in every direction. And the world is changing all around us while this is happening, and that's exactly what's going on here. You can be in all the denial you want to be, and you can continue to shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, but ultimately that's going to that's gonna end. That day is going to come to a, to a crashing halt. Finally, the town clerk, I read that and I think Howard Sprague from the old Andy Griffith thing, so the town clerk quiets the crowd by saying, hey, we know what's going on here, but the reality is these people aren't really that big a threat. They're really not. And so you need to calm down because you know what's the real threat? The real threat is, is that we're going to be accused of and convicted of, of disturbing the peace and we're going to lose our freedoms by Rome. So what you need to do is just back off. Just go away. And they did. They dismissed the assembly. But, but the, the madness of crowds is, is a, a very real thing. And we see that in both these, the gospel lesson and the Acts lesson. In David's case, it's a very personal thing. God's dealing with him on an individual basis. And he's able to hear the word of God spoken. He's able to cut through all the chaff and get to the truth. Because God's dealing with him one-on-one. -on -one. And if you don't have time to get away and pour out your complaint to the Lord like this psalm does, then you need to make that time. Because that's the problem. Is The problem is we can be so misled whenever we pour out this anger and pour our souls out over public issues. That then, we're, then there's something that we need to deal with within our souls. And we need to share that with the Lord so that he can quiet our souls and he can speak the truth to us. But we can't do that if we continue to allow ourselves to be led away by crowds.